0: Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. Well, listeners, you asked for it and we're delivering it. This episode is on the topic de jour, artificial intelligence. Now, I am very conscious that there are many people out there who claim to be experts in AI. And relevant to today's conversation, before I founded the Tech Policy Design Centre, I was Australia's independent expert and chief negotiator on cyber issues at the United Nations. That said, I am certainly no AI expert, but luckily for you listeners, I have with me here today in the studio two of Australia's leading independent technologists on artificial intelligence. Bill Simpson-Young and Tiberio Cayetano are the CEO and Chief Scientist respectively of Gradient Institute. And Gradient is an independent, not-for-profit research institute that has been working to build safety, ethics, accountability and transparency into AI systems long before it hit the headlines. And I had the pleasure and the privilege of sitting down with Bill and Tiberio over two sessions to record the conversations that you're about to hear. And we had such a good chat that we wanted you to be able to hear it all, hence why we're releasing this in two episodes. In episode one, we talk about key definitions, some of their bugbears in the conversation around artificial intelligence at the moment. We talk about why they signed the pause letter and ask, is it even possible to regulate artificial intelligence? And in episode two, we delve into things like open source AI models, the possibility of international agreements, US-China dynamics. And we also delve into the practical work that Gradient is doing to facilitate technical implementation of ethical AI frameworks to address the AI harms that are already occurring today. Now, it's important to remember that while a lot of the conversations in these episodes is about preventing harms, the reasons that we're seeking to prevent these harms is so that we can capture the enormous opportunity and potential to solve some of the greatest challenges of our time by harnessing artificial intelligence. So, Bill and Tavirio, I'm going to open part one by challenging you to do something that is really hard, and that is to give one-sentence definitions to terms that we're going to use over the course of the conversation that we have today. Now, these are terms that are bandied about in conversations but are often misused, and one of the things that I would really like this episode to do is to help our listeners to bring greater precision to the way that they talk about and think about these issues. Now, I can see the trepidation on your faces, but it's okay. I promise you this is a safe space. So let's kick off. Could you share a one-sentence definition of artificial intelligence? Bill, I'm going to put you on the spot first.
1: (laughs) Uh, Okay, yes, as you said, it's pretty tricky because everyone uses a different definition. The easiest way to think of it is... When we have an intelligent machine, an artificially intelligent machine or artificial intelligent system, it is performing functions that are usually a thought to require human intelligence. Great. Tiberia? Well, hard to beat that one. Um, I, I would say there's just non human intelligence.
0: Yeah. And what about machine learning? One sentence to describe machine learning.
1: It is machines learning from data based on given objectives. And it's often used to distinguish it from traditional programming where you write a set of instructions for a machine. So traditionally people wrote instructions for machines. Yeah. Now you give a machine an objective and some data and it learns a model that is machine learning. Awesome.
0: Uh, and Tiberio, you have a really interesting framing to help people think about artificial intelligence and how that differs from machine learning. Could you share that with us?
2: One way to think about AI is to think about AI as a delegate, as in AI is a process of delegating cognitive work to machines. Cognitive work has historically exclusively been done by humans or other animals. And uh, now we live in an age in which uh, effectively we can delegate cognitive work to machines. And we kind of call that AI. That's one way I like to frame it. Mm -hmm. Um, That framing I like for the following reason, because delegation is something that people are familiar with in an organization, and they know what it takes to get good delegation working. They know you need to define your objectives very clearly, and you need to communicate your objectives very clearly as well to the party Mm -hmm. that you are delegating the task to. You also do know that the part that you are delegating the task to, which in this case, of course, is the machine, needs to be equipped with the right resources, skills, and knowledge to be able to accomplish the task appropriately. <laughs> you also know that you need an open channel of communication with that machine that is very clear and constant. You also know that you need constant feedback that goes both ways so that there's learning taking place. Mm. So uh, the framing of delegation is also helpful because when we talk about delegation, we are talking about power. We are talking about the exercise of power within some predefined scope of authority. So if we are delegating some task to a delegate or to a machine,
1: Mm.
2: we better, in order to do that well, define really well the scope of authority for decision making and for action that that party will have and that party needs to understand that scope of authority. Um, One way to think about it is that machine learning is really the science and technology that is behind the creation of an AI system. So it's almost like AI is the product, right? Like you're talking about a self-driving car for example is a product or you're talking about a chatbot, this kind of little product that you interact with but the question is, how do you build that product? Well, do you build that product using some type of science? And the kind of science you use to build that product is called machine learning.
0: Now, one term that we're hearing all of the time at the moment is large language models. What is a large language model?
1: It is a model. Yeah. You know, so it, it is, and, and models are models that have been built from data and an objective yep. to build the model. Um, the model... In the case of a large language model, it is large, it has a lot of data, and that could be a large portion of the internet, and that's a lot of data. Language is its language data. So a large language model is pretty much what it says. Yeah,
0: perfect. Tiberio?
1: Well, first it's a language
2: model, and what a language model is, is a model, is a mathematical function implemented in the computer that generates language. Large because there's a lot of data that has been put into it in order to create it there's a lot of computational power that has been put into it in order to create it and the capabilities of these models are very powerful as a result of this large factor yeah
0: and when people talk about multimodal models is that am i correct to say that that's just rather than just digesting text then they're digesting audio and and visual as well as language is that correct correct that's,
2: correct. that's yeah. on the input side yeah but there is also the output side oh. so multimodal models in general they can be multimodal on the input yeah which is which type of information you provide text or images and videos and so on or the output which types of information and data it generates yeah can generate sounds and and text and so on.
0: And then we're hearing a lot about general intelligence. How would you define general intelligence? And I might put Tiberio on the spot first time this time.
2: Basically, intelligence generally. So before defining general intelligence, looking back into what is intelligence, is really the capacity to solve problems in some sense. General intelligence would be the capacity to solve many different classes of problems in many different ways Mm -hmm. so like if you have a narrow the opposite of general intelligence would be narrow intelligence so you build a system to solve one type of problem for example to win at chess if you build a narrow AI system to build to win at chess that's what's going to be good at it's not going to be good at playing cards, not going to be good at recommending movies, is not going to be good at driving a car. Mm. But a general intelligence is not actually built for the purpose of solving a particular problem. It's built for the purpose of developing general cognitive capabilities that can be useful to solve a range of problems.
0: Mm. And am I correct in saying, Bill, that most of the uh, the models that we have uh, dealt with previously have been more of narrow intelligence and the step change that we're experiencing now is the expansion out into general intelligence.
1: Yeah, that's right. And what's one particularly interesting thing is that if you look at large language models, in some cases, you know, they've, they've really been trained almost as a narrow, you know, use, to be narrowly intelligent. You know, yeah large language models are trained to predict the next word, which is actually Mm -hmm. a narrow task. It has become capable of a much more wide range of of forms of intelligence, Mm. quite surprisingly, Mm. such that it was always thought that designing general intelligence would be, something quite different from designing a narrow intelligence, but actually it has emerged from the same techniques.
0: You know, I've I've heard, um, for example, Minister Husic speaking recently and saying one of the frustrations that he has at the moment is people conflating large language models with artificial intelligence. So if you're going to distinguish between a large language model and artificial intelligence, how would you do that?
1: I think one way to think of it is there are narrow task-specific AI systems and that is the types of AI systems people have been used to up until this year um, the if you have AI in your in your automated vehicle you know, that is relatively narrow if you have AI in your loan approval system that is reasonably narrow if you have AI in a cat detection algorithm that's narrow and so a lot of it used to be the case that when people talked about AI, they were talking about those narrow, task-specific AI. Yeah. And then you've got the foundation models, which includes large language models, diffusion models, those other large models built from large amounts of data, multimodal models. Yeah. And then again, the third category are those foundation models, but when they have the potential to behave dangerously and they're at the frontier of knowledge about how they work, yeah. those are what are called frontier models. Mm. Uh, frontier AI models. And so in some ways, yes, it is the case that you know, people think AI is the type of thing they're most working with at the moment. So now that the ChatGPT came out, everybody yep. thinks AI is like ChatGPT. They've forgotten about all the AI in Google Maps and in everything else, right? Yep. Um, and But also they're also thinking, that's also stopping them from thinking about the risks of frontier models because they're thinking, oh... You know, AI is just things like ChatGPT, how could that possibly be harmful to society and, yeah. and cause you know damage, causes, cause issues to public safety? Because they're thinking about it as that same thing. So people's focus always changes on what they're seeing the most of at a particular time.
0: Exactly. So these large language models are a type of artificial intelligence, but they're only one type of artificial intelligence.
1: Correct. Yes, that's right.
0: So, Bill, you've just referred to their foundation models and frontier models, and you've given a pretty good description, but I'm just going to pass to to Tiberio to define those two terms.
2: So, as Bill said, so foundation models are really built in general today to one specific task, but that task is not an application. That task is the task of predicting the next word Mm -hmm. in a sentence. However, as a byproduct of that, it generates like, if, if I want to predict the next word in, so the cat is afraid of the, now it's probably not the mouse, right? It's probably maybe the dog. Mm-hmm. So in order to predict that the dog is the more likely answer to complete that phrase than a mouse, you kind of need to understand uh, a grounded relationship in the real world between cats and mouses and dogs hmm. right so in order for you to do well at predicting the next word you actually have to learn things about the real world yeah so that's a foundation model foundation model is a model that ends up being capable of predicting or all sorts of things and, and ends up being capable of being competent at many different tasks because it has not been trained for any specific task. Mm. it being trained to actually develop the cognitive capabilities that are wide and general and applicable across different tasks. Mm. Now, a frontier model is a highly capable foundation model. So capable, in fact, that if you asked it the question of how can I perpetrate a crime with that could kill some people with just you know household utensils and so on Uh, if that foundation model kind of gives you an accurate answer for that that would be a pretty dangerous foundation model we call that in many senses a frontier model frontier model is when the power of the intelligence and the knowledge that the has that foundation model has is so high mm. that it could actually pose significant danger for for the community for public safety as well.
0: so I always understood frontier models as being models that were it was more about like the compute power and the fact that they were sort of at the frontier of technology. But the way the two of you are defining it is that, the frontier models have this element of danger attached to them, which is interesting to me.
2: Yes, you are correct. The danger is a consequence of the increased compute power. Yeah, okay. Indeed, uh, frontier models are those that today probably require 10 to the 24 flops to be trained. I mean, that's a technical term to define how much computation needs to go into building a frontier model. Yeah. Uh, That's about the amount of computation that went into or or purportedly went into training GPT-4, for example. And we do know that as we put more compute, like if we go 10x or 100x Mm. on top of any given amount of compute, we do know that new capabilities emerge. Like suddenly you learn how to speak in a different language or you learn how to answer correctly to the question of how to synthesize a chemical weapon or things like that Mm. just by increasing the amount of compute Mm. so indeed you're right so it is largely about how much compute went into the training of that model Mm. but the practical consequences of that is that that model is much more powerful it's definitely more powerful to create very positive outcomes Mm. and that's exactly why everyone is doing it Mm. why would we be doing ai if it was just the risk side however the truth is that increased compute and it translates to increased power, that also has a downside. So a big piece of the work here is try to contain mm. that downside.
1: And the concept of being at the frontier tries to capture that the capabilities there, but the safety mechanisms, safety guardrails are not necessarily there yet. Mm. So you know, it is possible that What's at the frontier as it comes into the mainstream gets all the right safety around it. I mean, that's not necessarily happening as well as it could be. I mean, it is happening now with foundation models, you know, Mm. with the current generation of foundation models. Mm. There's some really good work being done to make them safer. But at the frontier, the investment isn't going into safety such that we know that they they are safe, mm. which is why there is the danger.
0: Mm. And so the investment is growing in, going into the development of the models. How do we make them better, faster, uh, increase the compute power, focus on the opportunities and not enough focus on, on the safety? So, you know, I think... My observation, um, looking at many of the conversations that are going on publicly in, uh, you know, whether it's on the front page of the newspaper or, frankly, even many of the conversations among experts, I'm using inverted commas, there's often a real conflation of how to regulate these foundational models, which are the models that are, um, you know, largely out there in society being used in your Google Maps or in your car and various different applications Um, and the frontier models. So one of the things I'd, I'd request listeners just keep in your minds as you're listening to the rest of this conversation, but also whenever you're listening to somebody talking about Um, the regulating artificial intelligence or how we respond to the challenges of artificial intelligence ask yourself are we talking about these sort of foundational models which are already out there in society or are we talking about those frontier tech frontier models because it does um, require a potentially different response You're listening to Tech Mirror. This is a podcast of the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. And if you're enjoying this episode, please help us by spreading the word. If we can grow our audience, we can bring you more conversations, more regularly, like the conversations that we're having today with Bill and Tiberio. So please tell your friends, your colleagues, post on social media, leave us a review, like us or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does make Make a difference. So, thank you in advance. And now let's get back to our conversation. Now, Bill and Tavirio, I have really put you on the spot there with those definitions, but perhaps now we should actually go back to the start and talk about the organisation that, that the two of you uh, have founded, Gradient Institute. It is a pretty unique organisation, particularly here in Australia. So, Bill, could you tell us about Gradient's origin story?
1: Yes, yeah, so Gradient is a, is a not for profit uh, research institute and a registered charity working specifically in safe and responsible AI. The origin story is we were um, two different groups came together actually. There's one group in CSIRO's Data61 previously from Nectar, another group in uh, Ambiata, which was a data science uh, organisation uh, bought by IAG, and we were both independently realising that a lot of the use of AI um, out there, and this is back in the mid two thousand and tens. Uh, a lot of the AI use out there was not being done particularly carefully, and we were doing work, particularly in government, where uh, the, so the Data61 side we doing work in government where sometimes, you know, it's very easy to do machine learning. <laughs> it's very easy to try to do machine learning. Yeah, lots of organisations have data. Uh, there's lots of algorithms you can, you know, lots of software you can download, and a lot of organisations were just applying the the software to the data. And making predictions and making recommendations out of that, and in a lot of cases they weren't really considering the implications of what they were doing. And we noticed this time and time again. And we thought, well, something needs to be done about this. Uh, in parallel, you know, Tiberio was in, in industry, in in Ambiata, uh, working in you know for large organisations who were using machine learning for for campaigns, you know, large scale campaigns affecting lots of people, like marketing campaigns and so on, and fi- finding the same sort of thing that it was a lot of the ethical implications of the systems were not being considered. Um, and so we met together, a bunch of us met together in a pub and we, we talked about
0: it. <laughs> and
1: uh, we all basically were seeing the same sorts of problems. And so we thought that the right approach was to create an independent organisation that focused specifically on this. We were all technical. We all I mean, I've been working machine learning since 1989, uh, or off and on, since 1989. Um, and and a lot of the, all the others in the department have been working for 15, 20 years on, on on AI, and we all just saw this these problems happening out there, and we thought it was time to focus on it, do research in it, and um, and build better ways to do AI responsibly. So again, a technical organisation working on the techniques. So we sort of four main things we do. You know, we work on research into better AI techniques. We work on training to help other organisations use AI wisely, and that includes data scientists, software engineers, right up to to board level. Uh, We do system assessment, where we go into organisations, assess their AI systems, and then we do policy influence. But again, providing the technical influence into policy, which often gets neglected and can be... Problem when it's neglected. Yes, <laughs> for obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, and it's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is how do we actually get that technical knowledge from the independent experts to the policymakers at the time when they're making those decisions. Artificial intelligence, as you say, Bill, you've been working on this for, for several decades. And yet it seems to have um emerged in the public consciousness in a way that it hasn't for a really long time. As ChatGPT has exploded onto uh, everybody's computers, what is it that it most that you think is the most common misperceptions that people have about artificial intelligence? Or perhaps to ask the question another way, what is one thing that you wish people knew about artificial intelligence that they don't know?
1: So maybe I'll just go back a bit before yeah, the other current before ChatGPT because this is a Probably my biggest bugbear. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> biggest I bear. love
0: the biggest bugbear. <laughs> and,
1: and it's something that's quite common and quite common even in people who should know better, you know, people who are talking about um, AI and machine learning. And this is actually a bugbear about machine learning particularly. You know, and yeah. people think about the term machine learning, they assume that machines are learning like humans learn, and therefore it's a continuous process. But most machine learning systems, I mean, not all, but, but most machine learning systems, you actually, you know, you train them a model and that's the learning part, but once the model's trained, the model's operating without further learning. And I've heard a lot of people talk about definitions mm-hmm, of machine yeah. learning being a machine that's continually learning. That, that That's adaptive, right? And some machine learning systems are adaptive, but yeah, you know, the vast majority that are out there now are actually not. Adaptive. You, know, you, you train them and then you, they operate them. And so that leads to a lot of misunderstandings. Um, including ones like, you know, coming back to ChatGPT, GPT, the idea that these large AI models are really expensive to operate. Well, they're expensive to train. Mm. Once they're trained, they're actually not that expensive to operate. And But there's a lot of other misunderstandings that come from that. The idea that once you put a machine learning system out there, you don't know what it's going to do. You know, for, for a traditional machine learning model, you might have, you know, trained the model, done a lot of testing, and you've got a pretty good understanding of how it's going to operate in, in, in the reality. It's not changing the way it operates all the time.
0: And so, when people talk about these emergent capabilities of artificial intelligence—that artificial intelligence is doing things that they don't expect it to do—how does that fit within what you've just described? Yeah, so that
1: definitely does happen now. Yeah. And so now, moving back into the sort of the more the newer, larger models, you know, yeah. l- large language models and so on, yes. it is the case that, you know, as has been the case with the, the most the recent models, that they're emergent. You know, functions that come out of these models that are not actually being noticed until after those models are actually out in the world. And this is coming purely because of the amount of compute that's being put in them. And yeah, the more compute you put in, the more un- un- unexpected functions come out. One thing to say perhaps is that um,
2: a these large language models that we are talking about, they may have this inherent... Uh, emergent properties mm. right like the, some capability of like i said translate from one language to another but no one might have discovered that that property is there mm. right so there's a distinction between the capacity for for something to actually happen and you having detected that capacity in the model mm. right so these uh, emergent capabilities they some of them may go undetected the current science doesn't actually give us any reliable recipe to know how to detect all of the potentially dangerous capabilities Mm. and that's crucial Mm. the fact that potentially dangerous capabilities i mean by dangerous capabilities i'm uh, you know could could be things such as you know i asked the question you know how do i manufacture a bomb um how how can an average person with you know household normal utensils and so on manufacture a bomb um and you know one dangerous capability would be if the system actually gives you a correct answer for that question mm-hmm. right so um there may be other Uh, dangerous capabilities, but you may not have detected them. So what's really important is that the process of developing these models evolves so as to prevent the very emergence of such dangerous capabilities in the first place. Mm. Uh, You can also patch them, so to speak. You know, sometimes you detect that they exist. Okay, so let's see how we can Um, maybe attenuate the impact or reduce the impact or let's just um you know step back and say well look we've actually detected that this dangerous capability is there we should not launch this model unless we are you know damn sure that this is not going to actually surface Mm. upon use Mm.
0: And so, you know, I think that raises a lot of questions for me, particularly around um, this increasing conversation around whether or not we should be using open source models. Um, But before we get to that, I do want to ask both of you, you are both signatories of the pause letter. So this is the letter that came out um, in March this year, calling for all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months training of AI systems um, more powerful than ChatGPT. So G-
1: GPT4. GPT-4. GPT-4,
0: yes. Um, can you, uh, I mean, this letter has been much talked about, much criticised, much applauded. Could you maybe both of you just share what was it that made you personally sign on to that letter? And then we can talk about what what might happen next from the letter and then we'll come back to the open source conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: actually quite an interesting story because that, that letter came out, you know, the the... the the minute it came out was actually happened to be while we had a team retreat down the Southern Highlands. <laughs> and um, so the whole team was was there and we'd spent the whole day actually talking about the risks of, of new, you know, the new large rate. This is back in well March, as March, you said, yeah. and, you know, the, the risks. And I was in the camp that was, yes, there are some possible risks, but, you know, that's long term, you know, it's speculative <laughs> and uh, and wasn't Particular way. some of the other staff including Tiberio were much more concerned at that point much much more concerned and we spent the day this is again before the letter came out yeah. uh with Tiberio and explaining and others in the team explaining why this was a problem explaining, you know going through the technical aspects of it showing you know showing research papers you know, we'd, we'd go through research papers looking at emergent properties looking at how the, and just how surprising and and unexpected they were how surprised a lot of the AI researchers were about particular functions that were coming out of these models as they got bigger and bigger. Just new features just coming out, and I'd, and these aren't new features necessarily. Just like um, you know, be able to translate from one language to another language, but things like um, you know, chain of thought reasoning, whole different ways of of intelligence, you know, different types mm-hmm. of intelligence emerging that weren't designed in there, that became capable once you got up to a certain level. And by the time, and, you know, I was by the end of that day, I was convinced. And then overnight, this letter comes out, and of course, bang! <laughs> since I saw it, bang! I signed it. You know, and it was, um, it was, uh, it was a no-brainer once I understood it. But a day, if it had come out a day earlier, um, I hadn't yet understood again the technical aspects of why this was true. And it's important to remember that the people, the initial signatories, you know, people like Yoshio Bengio, people like like Max Tegmark, you know, these are technical people mm. who understand, who've been working in the technology for, for a long time. Uh, Max Tegmark himself has been working on AI safety for decades. Mm. Um, and, you know, th- these were the people that were calling it. it wasn't, uh, you know, average people on the street saying, let's watch out for robots that are going to take over the world, right? This is the t- people who are building these systems who realise, hang on, these have gone too far. Mm. Um, and then, and later people like Jeff Hinton came out and, and so on. But the, um, it's really important to, to 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 see those as real risks. But it's also really important to remember what the lead was saying. It was saying... It was specifically, you know, GPD 4 or higher, mm-hmm. or higher than GPT-4. Um, but it was also saying, and let us refocus, you know, on AI safety. So it was not, you know, some people were, were quoting it as being a ban on on research into AI. It was not a ban on AI. Most of the people who were calling for AI researchers who you know, still want AI research careers, right? And they were wanting to put more emphasis into the AI safety aspects, start thinking about regulation. Mm. And it, it was actually misreported quite a bit. And I think it actually achieved its goal of, you know, raising attention about the risks, mm. which it definitely did achieve that goal. And, um, you know, whether or not it was ever pragmatic to pause, it, it. I mean, I think it did an incredible job of getting the, getting the message out.
2: Uh, personally, I signed the letter because I thought... Uh, the alarm should be sound. It Mm. it sounds the alarm. At the time, there was no widespread recognition of the potential issues of large language models. And um, in my judgment, based on the scientific research and based on the fraction of reputable other colleagues who were legitimately concerned about the issue, it was very clear to me that this is a matter that needs to be brought to the center of our political discourse. Mm. So it was about sounding the Alarm. I just want to flag that there is a really strong reason behind this letter, which is over the past 10 years, the amount of computing power that has been used to train AI systems has increased by the same factor than in the previous 60 years. Mm. So from 1950 to 2010, so a period of 60 years, there was a factor of about 10 billion in the amount of floating-point operation, and a gig speak for, you know, how many operations your computer is doing, right? How much compute power is there to train the most advanced AI models of the day. Now, that is the same factor that we've seen from... You know, 10 years ago until yeah, it's roughly. So basically, we sped up AI. AI was, or the compute factor behind AI, which turns out to be actually quite determinant of the capabilities of
1: AI, is um has grown quite a lot, very rapidly. Yeah. One other thing I think is interesting, and yeah, the Future of Life Institute, yeah, the. The- which
0: I have to say sounds like a cult. It's a terrible name for a really important work that they're doing. Anyway,
1: sorry, <laughs> yeah. as an aside. But it is an amazing organisation and definitely worth reading that yes, stuff. Indeed. But um, Max Tegmark, who was, who was one of the people behind it, he, 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 you know, as I said, he's been working in AI safety for, for decades. And he had always said that the AI safety community, and this has been a community that has, has existed for a long time, who were worried about these, these longer, what were long-term threats, less less long-term now, um, said that, you know, we're working on AI safety, we were yeah, you know, working on our systems, and we were there was this general understanding that as soon as AI gets to a certain level of capability, that the world would recognise that AI got to that level of capability and would make sure that AI never did one of these one one of these three things, right? Yeah, you know, we'd never let AI write code because that would be really dangerous. We'd never like let AI, um, be controllable by an API because that means anyone can control it. And we never let powerful AI, I'm talking about powerful AIs here, we never let powerful AIs have access to, through to APIs to the outside world because that would be really dangerous. And then of course, all of that, AI became powerful at the same time as all of those three things are happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so the yeah, AI safety community go, whoa, this is just moving way too fast. And that sort of, yeah, let's just just take a pause and have a think about what we're actually trying to do here.
0: Yeah, and and just for our listeners, API being is essentially the interface of chat Chat GPT. For well, it's example.
1: An, yeah, an interface between one program and another program, or between a program and hardware. Or, yeah, it's just a, it's a application programming interface, but just think of it as a. Interface between systems.
0: Translator. So what do the two of you say in response to people's criticism that that letter is focused on the long-term risks when we need to be focused on the more short-term risks?
2: Uh, one year ago, ChatGPT would be a long-term concern. Mm. Six months ago. yeah, well, A year. Yeah. A year ago, ChatGPT wasn't out. If you asked uh, even top researchers one year ago, mm-hmm. How long into the future do you expect to see something that looks like then, you know, plug-in chat GPT GPT descriptions? They wouldn't say one year. They probably wouldn't say two years. They would say, well, look, much more than that. Mm -hmm. So the very framing of long-term is actually quite dangerous. Because when you frame something in long-term, you're implicitly making the assumption that you actually know how much time is going to take for something to happen. Now, what you actually mean when you say this is a long-term concern is that this is an area in which there is so much uncertainty that we sort of don't know exactly what's going to happen. So we just put the label long-term on it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it can happen tomorrow. So that's a very bad way of thinking. But back to the core of your question, which is really one about trade-offs, you know, you got certain concerns like issues that are happening today now that are demonstrable harms Mm. that AI is causing. But you have legitimate AI issues like issues of um, algorithmic bias. You have issues of, uh, you know, fake news, misinformation, all that space of concerns that are all legitimate and important concerns that need to be addressed now. Now, the fact that harms are happening now doesn't make them any more real that harms that can happen tomorrow or in the month from now. In fact, that's a difference from humans and other animals. We actually have the capacity to foresee things and prevent bad things from happening, right? So if we only pay attention to what's happening now and under our nose, well, we're kind of going to be behaving like, you know, other life forms that are not as advanced as our, as our cognitive, as our our same cognitive capacity. So we better use it. And that's called planning. That's called prevention. That's called good foresight. And um, that needs to be informed by evidence and science.
0: One of the things I often think about when I'm looking at the the longer term existential risks and the, the harms that we see occurring now is this question of if we actually get the right regulatory frameworks in place now to address the harms that we're experiencing. Here, in, here I'm thinking about transparency, audit, these types of things. Um it will actually also put in place the foundations of what we need to address those longer term risks. Um, at least that's what it looks like from my perspective. This all comes back to a fundamental question, though, of do we think that it is actually possible to regulate artificial intelligence? Now, I obviously have a very strong view that the answer to this is yes, but I'm interested in your perspective. Um, and let's go to Bill uh, Bill first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, <laughs> I totally agree with you. Um yeah and and as you say i mean there's there's already you know a lot of laws out there a lot of regulation out there that already applies to ai of course you know consumer protection and discrimination and so on yeah. um, those regulations do need updating for ai for certain types of behaviors of ai you know and, and don't forget we're talking about intelligence operating at scale and speed that we yeah. haven't seen before so it's not surprising that we need to update you know the regulation and you know in government and you know um, so, so, yes, that needs to happen. We also need to be looking at different types of regulation uh, when it comes to the, the really powerful AIs that are we haven't seen yet, but that are coming. But we should be paying as much attention on those, if not more, um, as well. And we shouldn't we shouldn't let addressing the current harms mean that we don't focus on tomorrow's harms because tomorrow is tomorrow, right? It's not. Yeah. We're not talking about fifty years away. We're talking about much closer. We're yeah. talking about you know any yeah, any day, as to was saying. Um, yeah. So yes, very very doable. Um, Needs time and attention, and and needs technical input, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So Tiberio, taking as a as a starting point that it is possible to regulate artificial intelligence, it comes really now to the question of how do we regulate it, and in Gradient's submission to the government's request for submissions in relation to responsible artificial intelligence, Gradient set out three different types of or ways that you think we should be looking at regulating AI. So could you set those out for us?
2: Yes. So the way we framed this in our submission was that in general, you could say there are three types of regulation when you're interested in regulating technology in some way or another. Uh, One is just sector-specific regulation, like for automobiles or for drugs and so on and so forth. I mean, they... There are regulations that apply to that particular sector, you know, financial services, and so on and so forth. Um, there are regulations that are more sort of general regulations, like mm-hmm. privacy regulations, anti-discrimination, uh, consumer protection regulations that are not constrained to a particular domain or sector or industry, but they actually apply across the board. Mm-hmm. And finally, there is regulations that are technology-specific Regulations, For example, regulations that define which types of recombinant DNA products can be created or that defines what are the terms according to which your microwave should uh, f- function and so on. Mm. So it's really important that we understand the different types of levers, regulatory levers in terms of regulation. In terms of AI, a lot of the narrow AI is actually the harms, because the point of regulation is contain harms, prevent harms and limit them, right? So a lot of the harms from narrow AI not, not not all of them, but uh, a lot of the harms, the most prevalent harms, they are sort of contained within the scope of the domain in which you are applying. Right? Like if you have a narrow AI system to recommend videos, or like, you know, that system won't suddenly start to recommend bad diet plans or something like that. It's just going to recommend videos that you are not gonna like. So you kind of understand what's the worst case scenario for that model. So probably in that case, it's all right to not go and create new AI regulation that is broad about AI, but the regulation that focus on that sector, that the, the existing regulators already operate in that sector, they can better apply this, the existing regulations, They can check whether AI, new AI, um, can actually still conform with existing regulation, or they can patch up the regulatory interventions they have. Um, but we were talking before about frontier ai models that in our submission we argued requires a different type of intervention Mm. um, because it's a technology specific intervention and um, yeah so that is regulation that doesn't exist at the moment Mm.
0: and and i think when we're looking at that um conversation there's there's a lot there about the how we apply the existing laws to um to artificial intelligence whether they be sector specific laws or general laws um where there's gaps in that um and then whether or not we need to supplement that with technology specific laws in particular cases and I guess my my approach on that is, uh, you know, I agree that we need technology-specific laws in relation to frontier technology. I'm quite sceptical when it comes to that we need technology-specific laws for every specific application of artificial intelligence. I think we're creating a rod for our own backs if we're looking to create a new framework each time we have a new application. And that's the attraction of the general laws and the sector-specific laws.
2: But one thing to me that seems very important is that we have appropriate liability for AI-caused harm. Because when bad things happen, the main thing you need to do, other than fix whatever can be fixed, is to learn about it. Mm. To learn how to prevent from it happening again, right? And um, well, you actually want to make sure that those actors, that caused that bad thing happening mm. they are no longer incentivized to keep on doing whatever they're doing right so you want to create a very strong incentive for them to be ultra careful mm. to make sure that that bad thing doesn't happen again and uh, you know there's a word for that it's called liability Now you need to make organizations and developers liable for harm caused by the things they they, they they own and they have created. Even if they have no intention to do so. Now, the question of to the extent that you need a strict liability, which you won't need, you know, intention or negligence, which is a very strong form of liability. Well, in certain cases, you may actually need that. Mm. Because um, it's so hard to actually, you know, guarantee that despite best efforts, Um, to maintain a model well-behaved, it will effectively be well-behaved. And yet, because there's so much technical evidence that really, really bad things could potentially happen, like, you know, I'm talking about, you know, infrastructure threatening cyber attacks, right? Therefore, we need to think very carefully about uh, acting at the source of this risk, and the source of the risk is these potentially dangerous intelligence that is actually, has some true knowledge of the world. Because often we are concerned about the misinformation piece, which is terrible, of course, but sometimes the big concern is the truth mm-hmm. because you don't want the true knowledge of how to successfully engineer a pandemic-class pathogen to actually be available to everyone. You just don't want that knowledge to be easily accessible. And if you ask a sufficiently powerful large language model that question, not a model that has been um, sort of tamed to behave nicely like ChatGPT, but um, m- models that haven't been tamed to behave that nicely, uh, you may actually get the right answer. You don't
1: want and, that. And by having by having you know liability, essentially strict liability, you're ensuring that the, well, you're, you're make maximizing the likelihood that the organizations responsible for that are incentivized to build in the safety that, you know, that can and should be done and that requires a bit of a pause, you know, and stop the race a bit so that people can build in the safety that needs to be there and obviously the, the liability is, is an incentive for them to do so.
2: Yeah, and the other thing is accountability, right? Because, look, if you're releasing your models, yeah, like you mentioned open source before, let's say, meta is releasing for example several open source models and so on and there are many people concerned that well will they actually release much more powerful models into mm-hmm. the future and so on in the open source domain well let's say you implement some sort of strict liability regime, or not even strict liability but some strong form of liability for harms created by you know models that you've released right if that happens and if the actual behavior of the company changes as a result. That's an interesting signal, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) That's kind of saying that, well, look, I actually believe that this thing had a a risk. (laughs) I was releasing because I wasn't not on the hook, right? So accountability is important. It's truly important. And we live in a world where the world is super, super hyper-connected. It's very difficult to map Establish a clear relationship between causes and consequences, so we need to be very careful not to uh, create incentives for just creating power and distributing power without accountability. Power needs to come with accountability. Mm.
0: Yeah, look, I think the question about liability for me, it's really surprising how little the public conversation uh, talks about liability because I very much agree with you that it is the key to changing the incentive structures. Because at the moment, you have these large companies that are producing these, producing and training these large language models, releasing them. Um, you know, I think uh, Facebook and or Meta and releasing uh, Lama 2 and the examples that have been done with researchers in the US who have then made bad Llama by, yes, taking the open source, uh, making a few amendments to the code and then, you know, it being able to answer some of these um, more nefarious and dangerous questions. Now, of course... What happened there is it's not that Meta put out a version of a large language model that allowed you to ask these questions, but it was very easy to reverse engineer or to to change the the coding because it was open source. So I guess there's there's a couple of I mean there's so much in what what you have just said, but the liability question to me I think is a really important one. Um, what was what really stood out to me, and I commend the Australian government for this in the paper that they put out um, asking for submissions on responsible AI is it's the first time that there's a clear public statement from the Australian government that existing laws in Australia apply, which would also mean existing liability. So things like fitness for purpose, these types of things. So I think that's a step in the right direction. And I understand, Tiberia, you're, you're saying we may need to create new classes of liability. The conversation around open source models... You know, I- now, listeners, we're going to end here for part one, but please do join us for part two, which we're releasing simultaneously. In part two, we continue the conversation, picking up from this conversation around open source models. And then we go on to discuss the UK AI Summit, international agreements, US-China dynamics. We delve into the practical work around AI ethical frameworks. So please do join us and jump on over to part two. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.